0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, not in oh, I'm in
1: welcome to camera occulta where we talk about the representation of the occult in film we assume you already watched the movie so don't at me about the spoilers sometimes the movies are good sometimes they're bad today it's bad I'm joined by a 33rd degree obligate film nerd, Luke, and we are discussing 1972's Necromancy, produced by Tarrant County Community College, written by Mrs. Clinkstale's fourth grade class, and starring that guy who is way too into Orson Welles. How did you feel
0: about it? It was almost unwatchable.
1: So would we describe this as an exploitation or just a really bad production?
0: You would describe it as funny you should mention that, uh, because in researching this. And again, when we watched it, it was almost difficult to keep your eyes on the screen. And as I started researching this film, and I don't want to say we're going down a rabbit hole, but I am going to say prepare to be surprised the depth of this movie.
1: (laughs) No, (laughs) no. Okay, let's get to the necromancy.
0: So this film, which is set in California, because that's where it's made for, I'm assuming, uh, budget reasons. And the budget in this film seems to have been about five dollars. I couldn't find any real budget information on this movie whatsoever. I have no idea what it cost to make. I have no idea what it got in the box office. But I know it wasn't much because the critics, when they got their hands on this movie, they did not hold back. They weren't kind at all. It's only 83 minutes long, but it feels like about 83 hours. The The curse of this film isn't the necromancy itself but rather the lack of it. You're promised necromancy, you're promised a wild thrill ride of occultism, and what you get instead is really more or less dime store magic and a burst of necromancy at the end, which is rather disappointing, to be frank. One of the things to note here is this movie was filmed in 1970, but it it took until 1972 to get it released, and it went under the working title The Toy Factory. I think probably because they were trying to hide the fact that they were... They were making an occult film. One of the questions that came up during the viewing was where is this filmed at? I I thought originally was probably the North Hills of Hollywood, but I found out this is actually filmed in Elgato, California, which, hilariously enough, is somewhere in Southwest San Jose. I used to live in that area, and I did recognize some of the landscape in this film, and some of it I did not recognize until I actually realized where it was. And The hills between San Jose and Santa Cruz, they mix in between these beautiful valleys with with now vineyards in them, and these strange, upturned Martian landscapes. When you watch the movie, it, it seems as though they're actually traveling quite a distance when they're traveling, and... It's all in the same area. They didn't film this going up the coast. They filmed it all in Santa Clara County. When the movie starts, one of the first things you'll notice is you've never heard of any of the film companies, and they are really low-budget mom-and-pop film companies, the rating screen pops up. They'll let you know this is a PG-rated film. If you actually scroll all the way to the end of the film, the very last slide that plays in the movie is another rating screen that is rated R. And there's an amusing story behind that. So... This released in 1972. It took a little while to release. And that's because the production company, who was, I believe, uh, I think his premiere films, the director and the producers got into a legal battle and actually ended up having to sue the production company over getting the film edited because they were taking their sweet time and they weren't doing what the director wanted. Keep in mind, we've already said this is a bad film. Okay, and, and note what I'm going to say here it gets even worse. So, the director, whose name was Bert I. Gordon, or affectionately known in Hollywood, I kid you not, as Mr. B.I.G., who had produced many, many films. This guy had directed about a dozen, 14 movies at this point in his life, all of which were low-budget sci-fi horror, like giant ants and things like that. Real classic B-movie Hollywood. He and the producers sued the production company over creative control of the film so that they could do the final edit, because it was going so far away from the director's vision. And Again, understanding that this film was almost unwatchable means that somewhere out there in another space-time continuum, there was another cut in this movie that probably made a lot more sense until the director got his hands back into it.
1: So do you think Giant Ants would have improved on this?
0: Well, what's funny, six years later, in 1978, he released Empire of the Ants, adaptation of the H.G. Wells story. And that's when he did that, in fact, to get the correct. And I I think I did see that in like a creature feature or something. I think I saw this one as well. In fact, you may have seen this without realizing it. This movie was filmed under the working title of Toy Factory. It released in 1972 as Necromancy. It didn't do well. No one touched it again until 1982 when Elvira featured it on her show. And at the time, you couldn't get a copy. And I don't know if this was some backdoor Hollywood magic to try and stir up some interest in the film. But it was short in 1982, and in 1983, it was released on VHS as The Witching. It did not go back to its original title until it was released on DVD in the 2010s.
1: That would have actually made a much better title for it, to be perfectly honest, because what was I yelling the whole goddamn movie?
0: Where's the necromancy? Yeah. Uh, and they came close, strangely. There are a few times when they come very close to necromancy, and a few times when necromancy... Or elements thereof are in the movie and you may not realize it and at this point we probably want to talk about what is or is not necromancy the makers of the film had very much their own idea of what this was and this movie starts with someone thumbing through a dictionary and when they get to necromancy in the dictionary they read a definition and i have that clip here i'm just going to play that necromancy The ceremony dating back to the pre-Christian era is the art of reviving the dead, most dangerous of all the occult rituals. It requires involvement with evil spirits by the person performing the act. Success in the ceremony will result in the death of that person, for he or she must adhere to the ancient rule, a life for a life. Sounds pretty sinister, and this is America, by the way. So, since that this was filmed in America back in like the heyday of all things American, it wasn't hard to find out what dictionary they were actually reading in the film, and it was, of course, Webster's dictionary.
1: That was the that was actually in the dictionary.
0: No, that was absolutely not the dictionary. I have the most okay. definition here.
1: Literally off there.
0: So, Webster's defines. I'm going to get old school preacher on you here. Webster's defines say necromancy as conjuration of the spirits of the dead for the purposes of magically revealing the future or influencing the course of events.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the definition of necromancy. <laughs>
0: that's, that's, right. And, and the dictionary in the film was correct, even though they read entirely their own adaptation of this. So this film director doesn't care about what actually is necromancy. This guy was going for a certain look and feel, and that's what he went with. And strangely, looking into certain aspects of necromancy, it looks to me very much like what this guy's going from when they're putting together what is or is not necromancy is based on what little they knew of the Munich Manual of Demonic Magic, and also Western tradition of necromancy. There's also very much a, an element of the modern understanding of necromancy, which I think pretty much comes from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which involves, and in this case, this is what they're going for, explicitly resurrection out of the dead. So there's a few times this movie almost gets something right, but most of the time you're going to be disappointed. And I'll let you know that right off the bat. It's, there's... There's seances, there's tarot cards, there's everything but that. But let's let's talk about the, the progression of the film itself and trying to understand what they got into here.
1: Okay, a woman who is possibly a housewife, possibly undecided in her life, but definitely married, wakes up from a dream where she has a premonition about things going sideways with her husband. Her husband has been asked to relocate to this private town of Lilith, out in the boonies of California. And in the relocation process, she has another vision of a funeral happening on top of the hill, which plays in later. As they arrive to Lilith, they are welcomed by Orson Welles and his little cadre. And from there, it turns into a Stepford Housewives-esque movie about joining a new culture. And these are new age hippie types. Nothing wrong with that necessarily, but it is not an accurate portrayal of even that. In here, she never makes friends. She is constantly trying to leave. She refuses to acknowledge that there's a possibility of a future here. And she seems to be plagued by the ghost of Orsonwell's son, which is the ultimate aim. He is going to collect a soul to revive his son and that is the apex of the story but they do escape and by the end you learn this has all been a dream or a time loop or something like that it was really cheaply plotted
0: a premonition
1: a premonition premonition i don't know (laughs)
0: okay
1: The people that live there, there is uh, some interesting things at play because they are new age, like the town doctor has an astrology chart on his doctor's office wall. The ladies of the town, who I assume are also housewives, are very wooden and kind of forlorn. There's there's this thing with a puppet that she found driving to relocate that we're not really sure what it does, but it seems to be the Maltese falcon of this story. Um, I cannot coherently explain this movie because it is an incoherent movie. Uh, but Orson Wells doesn't seem like a bad guy. Honestly, it really just seemed like she was a bummer. And if she would have rode with it, she might have been fine by the end.
0: I think there's probably more to it than that. Go for it. They establish early in the film that she is, I don't want to say inquisitive, uh, but she asks a lot of questions. And the movie opens with her having a miscarriage. And that actually is not very clear. You're not never really sure what's happening there. And it instantly cuts to her in her bedroom with her husband, having a conversation as though the miscarriage never happened. But the character is established as someone who asks a lot of questions. Annoyingly so. Not in a way that makes her seem bright, or alert, but in a way that makes her seem like an underfoot character that her husband just has to deal with. And she's very tedious. And it doesn't help that this whole movie is very poorly written. The characters make sometimes the most illogical decisions. And the whole thing feels like this was a script someone wrote in middle school and just decided to throw that on the table and say, you know what? I never used this. Let's just go with it.
1: I completely forgot about the miscarriage.
0: Um, Because it's a very forgettable movie.
1: It doesn't even go in continuity with the sequence of the movie. It's like the first five minutes, we got a miscarriage here, and then everything's fine.
0: Well, they touch back on this topic in a way later in the film that they completely neglect to tie in with the film. And they could have used this, and they didn't. And this is where the film has a lot of elements that could have been subtly carried over for the audience to see this overarching sinister plot against our main character who by the way is not a nobody this was pamela franklin who was starred in the film even though orson Welles is bill top pamela franklin is in this movie and two years prior to that she was in a movie with maggie smith who obviously living legend that would be the prime of miss jean brody for which maggie smith won an oscar for best actress pamela franklin herself actually won british film academy award for best supporting actress that year and so two years later here we find her in this film playing the worst character. Probably something that tanked her career, to be frank. And it's hard to tell because that year alone, she was actually in five productions on TV and film. So they get going. Let's just go through this real quick. They get on the move. Her husband's a young advertising executive. He's he's there. He's caring, but he's, kind of, he's not exactly communicative. And he doesn't really listen to his wife when she's speaking, which off the bat makes him kind of a dick. They start traveling. They're driving on the road. They almost get to the town they're supposed to be going to, which is called Lilith, dumb name by the way, and they get, they almost get there, and they almost get into a car accident. Out of the burning wreckage, while he's calling for help, I guess foes, she walks down to the wreckage of the car and finds this little doll. She's enamored with it, she takes up into the car with her, they're driving, she reaches into the pocket, she finds, of all things, fingernails. It's more or less a voodoo doll that's meant to represent someone, and in this case, the thing of the person that's meant to represent are fingernail clippings, which... The doll represents the person the nail clippings belong to. The person who the nail clippings belong to did not put them in the doll's pocket. How the hell do you get someone else's nail clippings? I I, I spend half the movie wondering that. Like, how do you get someone else's fingernail clippings to make a clip?
1: I got yours.
0: Well, that's fine. We live together. But you find out later on the person who made the doll, who we meet, did not live with this person. They probably weren't on great terms. Anyway, so she got the doll car breaks down, runs out of gas. Everything's going wrong on this trip. During the time, she does, like you said, wander up to a funeral on a hill and sees that a few people... There she sees Orson Welles, of course. There's a casket with a little blonde boy in it. And they continue on the trip. They go. They finally find Lilith. It's your basic, everyday, average, small-town America town. There's nothing special about this place whatsoever. It's totally a post-war ranch house subdivision. They meet Mr. Cato. Orson Welles is a great actor. But I did read a critical review in which they stated that Orson Welles brought about 4% of his immense talent to this role. He seemed completely disinterested. And that is the, that's the impression I got as well. I don't know how you felt about Orson Welles in this.
1: It's not his best work.
0: No, it's not. There's a biography later on about Orson Welles in, in which they discussed that he only did this movie because he was trying to drum up some cash for another project he was trying to complete. And he had no interest whatsoever in doing this. The other actors described him as dismissive, which is fine. I can see that. I'm sure he showed up at all these community theater actors they hired for this film. were all just enamored with him. Hey, Mr. Wills, glad to meet you. We want to we'll learn so much from you. And the guy just shows up day one and is like, I sucked." Rita Hayworth. Who are you? <laughs> in the very first meeting of this young couple, uh, the character names, by the way, are so boring. Lori and Frank, they're our, our hero and our hero, more or less. They're discussing things with a Mr. Cato who owns a toy factory in the town of Lilith, where they produce, by his own definition, toys of all kinds related to the occult. Which I want to see these toys. Where do I find these? Etsy, I suppose.
1: Bad Dragon.
0: Okay. <laughs> uh, during the meeting, Lori, who is very perceptive, and we were shown earlier in the film a part of a dream she was having which she recalled her parents discussing when she was a kid that she was very special. Her mom was saying there's something very special about her because of some mark she had when she was born. She she
1: was born with a call for her. She was born with a call. I completely forgot this part of the movie because they just say it and then nothing happens with it.
0: Again, they're trying to establish the character as if there being something special about her or her being sensitive or having some power, but they don't do a very good job of sticking the landing on that. So you don't see the connection and you don't care because constantly she's just asking questions, asking questions, asking questions. And she said, I don't like that. And she, again, she's she's very perceptive, but she's also very annoying. And so you, you don't want to make a connection. You just kind of want to see where this is going to go. During the first meeting with this Mr. Cato or Orson Wells, he gives her a book to read because she picks up on the fact that there's a lot of occult involvement for only having known you for 10 minutes. And so he reaches over to the coffee table and he pulls off a book, a black book, and he hands it to her and says, here, I want you to read this. It's The Grand Grimoire. Like I can't say it like he did, but he said it like it was more grand than it actually should be.
1: But its title's not The Grand Grimoire.
0: No, it's, it's just, just The, the grimoire. grimoire. Yes. And so I was, I was looking for a just The Grimoire to see if this book actually exists somewhere, and I couldn't find it. Given that the cover of the book, and I'm actually looking at a photograph of it right now, given that the cover of the book is well-aged and it's as a plain black unadorned book that says the grimoire on the front of it in large gothic letters. But the pages inside the book are pristine white. And it leads me to believe that this grimoire they're reading in this movie is in fact just a, a prop.
1: It does have pages from the Lamegaton in it, it, but not pages from the Lamegaton. It has the art that would fill a whole single page done as a bunch of thumbnails.
0: This is, this is true. We see it later, but we don't actually... We see her reading a book and we see pages of a book. We don't see anything to indicate that that's actually the book that he handed her. And there is, in fact, a grand grimoire known also as the Red Dragon. A lot of rumors surround this book, and it's supposed that the Vatican has the only copy of it. And you can also get it on Amazon for $6 and 75 cents a paperback which seems a very low price for something with supposedly this much power. In fact, a lot of these books go together because you can also just hop onto Amazon and grab the Munich Manual of Magic. And I, I looked i looked that up as well. And the people who get into that also pick up their own copy of The Lesser Key of Solomon, along with... And this is a real little kid moment here for me, along with The Book of the Sacred Magic of Abermelon. Oh, hush. Which I've seen on many a shelf in the course of my life and based on the cover and the title i honestly thought that was just like a 1980s fantasy
1: so he hands her this book yes tells her to read it after she protests constantly either wavering between i'm an atheist and i don't believe in any of this or y'all have all given up on god and need jesus we can't figure out exactly where she's going with that
0: No, and one of the questions asked in the job interview, which is illegal, by the way, was whether or not they were interested in religion. If they had any faith of their own. And it suggested they're atheists, but not said that they're atheists. Obviously, they don't have any problem either way, because the guy took the job, and they're here in Lilith now. I guess we're to assume that they have no affiliation. It's really, again, they throw all these pieces up in the air, and they just let them fall where they may, and they never actually put them together. It's so poorly written.
1: So in part of it, there is a little general store looking thing, which I thought was rad as fuck. That was the coolest thing about the movie is this general store, which honestly looks like an antique store that you would stumble into into a big city. And I couldn't tell if it was loosely implied that that was the furniture of the people who have abandoned the town and that they've done rituals on. I I think
0: so. Again, we see that store a couple times in the film. At one point, ladies are just there doing their shopping. They're buying their herbs. They're buying their teas. But you can also get... And I did go through the timeline of this film with a fine-toothed playhead and look at some of these details, trying to discern what was going on. Again, we want to point out this is filmed in San Jose. So they're really only about um, 45, maybe 50 miles away from San Francisco. San Francisco was a bit of a hotbed for the occult at some point in the 1960s and 70s. I don't want to get into too much detail on that, but there was some things there. So it's possible somebody might have called a friend down or gone to a friend's store while they're in the area and just, hey, can we use your store for the afternoon and film? Because there's too much cool stuff in that store for it just to be a local antique shop. Or their budget. You're right. There's no way they built that antique shop for their budget, which again, we don't know what that was, but. Some of this film was obviously shot handheld 35 millimeter. This whole film was 35 millimeter, And it's kind of shaky and goofy. And I, I'm pretty sure much of this film was Shocked realistyle. style. Burt I. Gordon, Mr. B.I.G., the director, most of his films were family affairs. His wife would help. His wife would produce. His wife would do some of the writing. His daughter acted in some of the films. And there was a production crew. There's art direction, things like that. The lighting in this film—it's done well. So some production went into this. Some thought went into this more than you would think for a movie where they let so much slide in the script. But again, Mr. Bert I. Gordon, uh, B.I.G., he actually wrote this, co-wrote with another screenwriter. So much of this dialogue was probably his own. And what a sting that must have been for Wells to come onto this set and have to be directed by this guy who makes nothing but schlock. In Wells being the better director, the better writer, the better actor in every possible regard, which also made Wells kind of a dick. And this shows how far his career had slid by this point in time where he could even get one of his own films finished because no one trusted him with money anymore. He didn't care about timelines or budgets. He was difficult to be around. He appreciated good actors and he was not very tolerant of people who weren't quite getting it. And he was also, and this is the curse of any artist who sees a great success in their youth as he did. He was completely convinced of his own genius. The dialogue in this is something that was mentioned often where most of Wells' performance, again, top billed actor, Orson Wells, and going back to the icon through this with the fine-toothed playhead, Orson Wells is actually in less than 15 minutes of footage and most of that is as critics described it mumbling overfilled dialogue i actually have some of that here now let me go ahead and play a little bit of that dialogue we know a remote farm in lincolnshire where mrs buckley lives every july peas grow there do you really mean that yeah so in other words i'd start half a second late. don't you think you really want to say july and that just goes on for sometimes like 10 minutes he's mumbling incantations is what he's doing But he's mumbling incantations as though he's got some better place to be. Orson Welles, it's cool to see him. I like Orson Welles' movies, but it's hard to watch him in this because you can tell he'd rather be anywhere else.
1: So where do we go after the pass-off
0: of the book? After the pass-off of the book, this young couple move into their new home. And here's something else that's sinister about this. They don't touch on this. We find out that in these next few moments after the pass-off of the book that Mr. Cato, the wealthiest man in town who owns the, the toy factory where everybody works, more or less, the Mister Cato actually owns all the people in the town, and he owns all the homes and so the general store where they all work and buy their stuff. Is his own stuff too, so he provides the living for everybody there. He he is an occultist who, by his own admission, has thousands of books, everything ever written on the subject, which is a wild boast, by the way. Which we it, never see. We, we 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 never see these books. I'm sorry. In in my mind, what I'm picturing are these really old, rare codexes and and massive occult books that almost no one has enough money to purchase because they're so difficult to find. And Mr. Cato is claiming to have them all in his own library. The guy guy is obviously a spiritual leader in the town. And he also, he owns the town. He owns the factories. He owns the houses. He owns all the the shops and things like that. The sinister thing about this, I think, is this is a movie about a company town. Yeah. Where they're all beholden to Mr. Cato. And I'm not revealing too much in advance here. We find this out very quickly. The young couple go to their home which is provided by Cato. They get inside there. They're talking, and they're actually arguing where uh, our lead character, Lori, is having some uneasy thoughts about being in here and being involved with uh, occultists. And again, if you're an atheist, fuck you care. They're in the middle of a heated argument, and some blonde woman just wanders into their home and stands in the doorway while they're talking. And she's in the room with them, While they're arguing, and neither of them even seem to notice. Priscilla is the character's name. Walks in very quietly and just stands there. And the two of them continue to argue as though this is completely normal. Her husband, Frank, decides to leave the room. And so we're left with just Lori and Priscilla. And the two of them meet and they're chatting. And Priscilla reveals that the house that they're in used to belong to someone else the owner of the doll that Lori is carrying around. Priscilla says, you know what? I'll just take this off your hands. And Lori's like, oh, no, thanks. I like it a lot. And she snatches it back out of Priscilla's hands. You can tell Ms. Priscilla's a little miffed by this, and she wants that doll. She wants it bad. So Lori places it on a shelf somewhere, and Priscilla says, that's just where whoever it was used to keep it. And so you're, we're seeing now that Lori's falling exactly into the place of the person who had, had left. And this is the person who died in the car crash, again, to remind everybody. Lori is left feeling uneasy. Priscilla just walks out of the room. Again, Walk just walks out of your house. So as a welcome to the town, Lori and Frank, who starts his his job right away. Again, he's an advertising executive, advertising and marketing for the Toy Factory. And they're invited to Mr. Cato's house for a get together to get kind of get to know everybody. And they get there and Lori walks in the doorway and instantly hippies are walking up to her saying, cryptic, dreamy, hippie stuff in a way that's very disorienting for her. You can tell she's not comfortable.
1: I'm a Capricorn. That's the 10th house. What's your sign?
0: Why are you afraid of being superstitious? Your eyes tell that you are. If you take Lilith like a trip, it's really far out. Uh, In the party, you get to meet some of the people and you get to see some of the faces a little more closely. They do reveal in the party that this is more of a magic gathering then it is an actual party. Mr. Cato offers her a drink. Someone goes to toast her. Here you actually get to meet the town doctor, who is a pretty good-looking guy, actually. And his name, the actor's name, is Harvey Jason, Dr. J, who toasts the arrival of this new couple. And we get to see the doctor more and more. Uh, But I will go ahead and drop the line on you here. This actor who plays Dr. Jay, he and Pamela Franklin, our star, they actually end up getting married. This is the production they met on, and they got married, and to this day, they still are married.
1: Well, I'm glad something good did come out of
0: this. That's funny you should mention that. Pamela Franklin said in an interview many years later that meeting her husband was the only good thing that came out of this film. Eventually, Mr. Cato offers her a drink. Uh, she takes the drink, and she looks down into the cup, and in the cup, she sees another vision, perhaps of the future. And she sees herself walking into a, a large ornate home and wandering through. She sees occult images. There's this giant painting of this Baphomet style beast up on the wall with a lot of weird symbology. The colors are terrible. The painting is terrible. It doesn't quite make sense. It looks as though there's about three different styles of the occult mixed into it. But she's having a she's having a bad time. Having a rough time with this. And these, she's having these visions again. We were we're told earlier that she has these special powers and she's very perceptive. Of certain things and this is part of the vision she has while she looks into the cup which on her own to be able to look into a cup and just conjure a vision good on you later in the film we get to see her and dr j settled down and everyone's in a circle she's brought into the center of the room and dr j pulls out the largest tarot cards in history
1: they are tarot art prints that you frame and put on the wall they are not a tarot deck i have never seen a tarot deck that size in my forty years of existence,
0: so it, it, it's a little weird to watch him pull these out and start discussing the the use of the cards. and He's not wrong about their use and you know, and their purpose and what what's what's to be done with them. He describes it in general terms, but in correct terms. And he lays these cards down. We get to get a look at them, and they're all eight and a half by eleven. Wait, like if, if there were if there was a printer, they had printers then. I would know if somebody just printed these off in their office. Uh, what we he tells her to shuffle them.
1: And she yes. looks at him like, How the fuck do I shuffle this?
0: Yeah, that's your your cry. I forgot about that. But yeah, he, and the only hands are like five cards because that's all they have. Uh I found out later these actually came from the prop department before they left Los Angeles. So and... they're
1: stage okay. Stage. That actually makes sense if this is a community theater. That that would be the prop for tarot cards they have.
0: It's not a community theater though. Like this is this is Mr. Big again. This guy had been in Hollywood for like almost twenty years at this point. He had connections. This is this is a real production, and I'm looking I'm looking at a photograph of these tarot cards now. They're huge. They're like notebook paper size, and they look like. They look like magic marker stencils. They, they look like somebody just illustrated these on their dinner table and passed them off to the director So here you go. So he lays them down. She sees more visions in the cards as they drop down on the table. There's a lot of overlay effects in this film. And we don't get to see any real magic here, although there is a seance during the this party in which they are trying to conjure Mr. Cato's lost son. Had they tried to actually manage to conjure him or tried to get some information out of them or to find the future, that actually would have been some real necromancy. So we, we came really close at the party to maybe scenes of necromancy, finally, like 45 minutes into the film. But that was not the case. All we got instead was one seance scene and then they moved on to tarot cards. And then after the tarot cards and the vision and the cards, the party's basically over.
1: Go back to the tarot cards. What was the spread? It was something that was not what they end up saying like if you actually read cards you know the tower's the bad card and the death just means change but of course they pulled out the death card in this one and i think that's when she has the vision
0: the death card came first i think the first vision she saw with that one was of mr cato's face over the death card Laughing. Laughing, yes. And they're suggesting constantly that Mr. Cato is interested in her. There's a connection here with her. Even though Mr. Cato is trying to get her to, let's say, read the grimoire or get involved in magic, we're constantly led to believe that something sinister is up and that that they've got a sinister purpose in mind for her. It's confusing that they're bothering to try and bring her into the fold and educate her about this. And we've been told someone's going to have to die. That Mr. Cato's into the occult. Mr. Cato lost his son. The title of the film is Necromancy. We, we, we see where this is going. There's no subtlety with this, even though there Get could. The
1: necromancy.
0: You're right. Yeah, it's yeah. for fuck's sake, please. The party ends. The cards are red. We're back on the street. Lori's walking around this tiny little town, which could be anywhere small town America. She's passing the playground, and she sees a little bond boy swinging on a swing. She's watching this kid. Another woman approaches her. She asks the woman about the boy because something that Lori has noticed is that there is no children in the town. And the woman tells her, no, there's no kids. We're not allowed to have kids. Mr. Cato won't allow anyone to have children. Laurie says, well, that's fine for old people. And the lady's like, well, there are no old people here. Everyone here is under 30. So you've got a whole town of young professionals, young couples, none of which are allowed to breed by Mr. Cato's orders. Lori keeps spotting this kid. We're not gonna dance around it, is she's seeing the ghost of Mr. Cato's child. She keeps trying to tell everybody, and people are dismissive. They're ignoring her. They don't believe her. Lori's very frustrated by this. She's very frustrated by the whole thing. She keeps trying to tell her husband she wants to leave. Her husband keeps ignoring her. It's like we got a pretty good gig here. Let's hang on and see what happens. Let's just give it a week. but her husband becomes more and more distant. You're seeing less and less of him as the film progresses. And when you do, he's more insistent that they stay. Let's talk about necromancy for a second here. And let's talk about a little bit of history because there's no lack of mentions of necromancy in history. We can go back as far as there are stone carvings and reliefs in Chaldea or Babylon, or where have you, even in ancient Chinese medicine, where necromancy is mentioned. The first literary reference to necromancy that anybody can find is in the Homer's Odyssey, but before that, we know it was practiced for a very long time, going back a very long way, all around the globe. Everybody had some form of necromancy where they're trying to contact the dead. Some people believe that spirits had all the answers. Some people believe that they could always just tell you the future. And so people are trying to divine with that. There's necromancy in the Bible, mentioned a couple of times. But the understanding of what is necromancy depends very much on where you are in the world and what period in history. We see necromancy as it's defined in this film by medieval tradition, touching back on the Munich Manual for Demonic Magic and the modern understanding of necromancy, of the resurrection of the dead. In the medieval understanding, the late medieval understanding, necromancy is something that you could do to divine the future. But it was also something you would do to influence the, the living, to, to manipulate a living person. So during a scene of intense frustration, Lori goes to see Mr. Cato alone. Uh, she's on screen alone with Orson Welles. And this actually is not a bad scene. We've got two accomplished actors together doing a scene alone. And you actually see Welles doing a little bit of acting here. Laurie stays in character. and Her character is terrible, but the actress, Pamela Franklin, she's not bad on this either. So this is one scene where it's actually pretty watchable. She tells him she's not going to become a witch. She's not interested in Nicole and she wants to leave. And she says to him, I know you can control my husband, but it's not going to work on me. I don't want anything to do with it. And in that suggestion, even though we don't actually get to see it on screen, we never get to see Mr. Cato practice any magic. Probably had a lot of difficulty trying to get Wells to do a lot of these scenes. We learned that Mr. Cato is controlling her husband, manipulating her husband. By suggestion in the film, we learned Mr. Cato is actually performing a type of necromancy. Maybe he's conquered the dead to control her husband, but Mr. Cato is using magic there. So there's, there's a possibility that necromancy is occurring. We just never really find out for sure. Lori leaves. Mr. Cato, unsatisfied. She continues to wander around and run into this little blonde boy around town. These things progress. She tries to have another conversation with her husband. He tells her that, you know, he got invited to a small thing at the doctor's house. She doesn't want to go. He convinces her to go anyway. They go there. They show up at the house. All the lights are off inside, uh, which would tell me nobody's home or I don't want to knock at the door. Uh, They go knock at the door anyway. All the lights come on. This is a hilarious scene. When the lights came on, Like, every light in the house just, like, bursts into life instantly at the same time. They bust inside. The doctor shows up. Uh, He's wearing a robe. The doctor starts telling her that they want her to join. And she says, yeah, but it's, it's witchcraft. He's like, well, yes, it is. And he gives her a little speech. And funny enough, depending on your belief system, he's not wrong. The doctor actually gives a good explanation of their understanding of what witchcraft is and how to explore it. We prefer to think of it as the true religion,
1: the mother of all beliefs. Witchcraft is the only honest religion that makes things happen now, in this life. That's why all of us here in Lilith believe and,
0: and practice it. Lori rejects the invitation, despite the fact that everybody's very polite and very kind to her. It's just not for her, but they just won't take no for an answer. During all this time, Lori, we find out, has been reading the grimoire that Mr. Cato gave her in all of these scenes. It's really just more or less a list of spells. It, what she's reading on camera sounds about as interesting as reading a recipe book. We do find later on that there are some interesting passages and some educational passages in the grimoire that she's given, which is called the Grand Grimoire, but not labeled the Grand Grimoire. We don't really know what book this is. I'm pretty sure it was just somebody. By this point in the film, Laurie has seen the ghost of the little boy so frequently and so often that she's becoming very comfortable with it. And And one morning she wakes up and the little boy is just standing next to her bed. And she just sits up and starts having a conversation with him. Like, hey, what are you doing here? Go downstairs. Wait for me there. I'll come down in a minute. And the kid just walks off. This kid was a child actor, by the way, who was presented as about eight years old in the film. But in reality, was about 13, almost 14 when this movie was made. She goes downstairs. She can't find the kid. She can't find her husband. She makes a phone call to one of the people she knows in town. I guess one of her husband's coworkers to ask if her husband's at work. Where is he? I haven't seen him. He didn't come home last night. And the woman tells him that her husband had to go to Los Angeles for something, for work. And she's like, why would he leave without telling me? And she's like, I don't know, because he just felt like he had to. And it was all a very strange conversation. Lori hung up the phone. After she hangs it up, the woman who she was talking to lays down in bed, uh, bare-breasted, and her husband, is Lori's husband, is there with the woman. So her husband is already just completely abandoned.
1: But I will say, those people... Those were some fantastic 70s boobs.
0: Yes, and we get to see Lori later on in the film without a shirt on. There are some fantastic 70s boobs, but not quite as fantastic as the woman who lured her husband away. Lori is feeling strange, wanders down to the basement, wondering where the little boy went. She goes down there, can't turn the lights on. He beckons her into the darkness. As soon as he's out of view, rats come scurrying out of the walls, and she's attacked by a pack of adorable rats. The rats aren't making shrieking faces they're making cute nibbly faces at the camera i guess if you're terrified of rats this will a bit about one of the most terrifying things ever but
1: it looks like a puppy pile
0: it looks like a puppy pile it, it like the, the the dream you have of of being completely overwhelmed by kittens that's about how dangerous this scene actually looks on camera but they are playing the shrieking of the rats at about 150 decibels so it, it's alarming in that sense in the middle of the attack, the rats just vanish, and it turns out she's fine, and she's just having some weird visions. Again, Lori is very perceptive. She walks out of her home, she's walking down the street, and she's trying to go about her life. and She's completely by herself right now. She has no support structure from her husband. She has no support at all. She wanders into the general store, and she runs into the handsome doctor again. And he points out to her that she has accidentally stepped inside of a magic circle they have prepared for her. And we actually get to see the circle.
1: By the way, this circle's actually accurate.
0: In, in, in medieval Western tradition, drawing of circles would be used in necromancy, so this could actually be tied to necromancy. The movie's so vague about it, though. If this, if this circle is accurate, though, it looks as though some somebody on this set knew some of what they were doing.
1: And this would have been, this particular rug, uh, magical circle, would have been a protective circle. You can't see it very well. You can see Alpha and Omega. They wanted to make sure that you saw that. But on the peripheral is actually a protection circle.
0: Okay. Uh, in this scene where they're in the store, and she runs at the doctor and he assures her that they're going to continue trying to bring her into the coven. Again, this film you're seeing, with this, all these blends of different different practices. And these people, they're cultists, but they're all over the road. So it's a little bit of everything in here. So Lori, stuck at home, Doing nothing, wandering by herself, staring into the fire alone. Begins seeing more visions of the occultists. She's seeing them in the fire. She sees Mr. Kato in the fire. During this scene, he's giving more incantations, just mumbling under his breath. Uh, This scene goes on for much longer than it really should and it really really goes on for a very 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 long time where they're showing the occultist and that they're still planning something with her they're constantly dropping hints that lori's going to be involved in something she's constantly seeing the boy we're told there has to be a life for a life going back to western economic tradition from the middle ages uh that to conjure the dead a life was the price for doing so so something had to be sacrificed. So, they're not wrong, uh, and we, we've picked up because this film is just so freaking obvious. The dialogue is so poorly written up. Now Lori is, Lori's the intended sacrifice. We see this coming 10 miles away. Lori wanders out, she finds... Priscilla dead by a pond for no reason whatsoever. We're never told why Priscilla was dead. She continues to see Mr. Cato in odd places. Once she goes home and Mr. Cato is just appearing in her mirror, she sees visions of another ritual, dark ritual going on, where all the cultists have gathered together. Now they've changed into their black robes, and the handsome doctor is now sacrificing an adorable baby goat that's strapped to a table. There's a guy there in with no shirt on in this perfectly 1970s devil mask. I love this thing. I mean, it looks like it's a bull. Is that okay? Is that what's well, it's, it's? Moloch. Okay, right, I see. Thank you, thank you so much. I've seen the image before, but I didn't recognize it. Thank you. Uh, Lori panics. She attacks the person. The mask falls off. It turns out she has stabbed her husband, who was there participating in the ritual. Again, the guy who is suggested to be under the control of Mr. Cato, possibly, possibly through necromancy. So, possibly, there's been some necromancy in this movie, called necromancy. Even though we haven't seen any actual necromancy yet. Does she wake up for this vision? We're not actually sure. We keep seeing this going back and forth. And we're not sure what is vision or what is not vision. We find her laying on the floor. The kid approaches her. He touches her lips with a magic mushroom. We know it's magic because she begins seeing swirling colored lights. And colors begin fading out of the room. She begins having another vision. She sees herself falling out of control through space. We see her lying topless in her own bed, comfortable and happy. Doesn't make any sense. We're not sure how we got to this point, or what's going on here. There's some discussion about uh, later cuts of the film, in which more nudity was added, and some nudity was taken out. Apparently, Pamela Franklin wasn't very happy with the inclusion of the nudity in the final cut of the film, but there's been, like, two final cuts. She sees just weird stuff happening all over, and when she wakes up from this vision, this final vision with with the little boy, she wanders out on the street and the kid's just waiting for her out in front of her house. And she takes him by the hand and they go walking off together. He takes her to the side, to a hillside outside the town and the boy's now gone. Lori's by herself and she just wanders up the hill and she sees off in the distance the original funeral party we saw earlier in the film. They're at the boy's grave and they're mumbling, they're chanting, they're trying to summon the ghost of the boy. The coffin is raised up above the ground. It looks like it's made out of velvet. It honestly looks like some type of hilarious department store prop that they brought in for this. They open the coffin up, and inside is one of the greatest skeleton props I've ever seen. Like It is so poorly done. It's just a skull with a blonde wig and the kid's red shirt tucked up around the neck, and the arms are folded in the most hilarious position. I love this. Lori's coming to charge of the fact that she's here now. This is happening there's not much to be done about it. The kid morphs into a flesh covered body. The kid opens his eyes. They pull him out of the coffin. He stands to his feet. And here's where the real magic happens. They just shove Lori in the coffin and slam the lid shut. Ah. There's no, there's no sacrifice. The boy's already alive. There's been no price paid to bring the boy back. The boy is on his feet. He's alive. And then they just, yeah, they just unceremoniously just grab Lori and slam her into the coffin and slam the lid. And she's she's screaming. There is confusion. She's she's upset. Who wouldn't be? Uh, I've been inside coffins. There's not a lot of breathing space inside there. And in the panic of trying to get out of the coffin, she wakes up at home back in Los Angeles with her husband where we started the movie. He's trying to console her. She's obviously having a bad dream. The whole thing was just nothing. But we're back at the start of the movie. We're back at the start of the movie where they're getting ready to leave on the road trip to go start his new job. And he's saying, okay, well, we got a long day ahead of us. And he's saying some of the things he said to her earlier. There's a real sense of deja vu here where she's noticing that he's saying exactly the same things, having the same conversations. He's not really listening to what she's saying, while she's trying to explain things. And she's got an odd feeling about this. And as they start to leave the house, as does the beginning of the movie, the fall rings. It's Mr. Cato calling to check on them and she has this real panic attack. We get these hilarious, like, extreme close-up, zoom-in, zoom-out panic moments of the phone and Lori's face going back and forth, and she backs up the stair in shock and horror. And the film just freeze-frames and starts rolling the credits on a shot of just about the most unflattering photograph any actor or actress could have of their face for five minutes while the credits roll. And that's That's it. That's the whole film. That's necromancy.
1: It looks like a picture my sister sent me for fun once.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, hey, I took this bad photograph of you. You know, soak it up. And so that's what that's what we get. Um, And the tragedy here is with Orson Welles and Pamela Franklin cast in this film, there was a real chance for it, except for the director, who looks like somebody's middle management uncle. Fun fact about this guy, Mr. Big, Burt I. Gordon. He died in March of this year at age 100. Real horror film death here. He fell down the stairs in his Hollywood home and died in the coming days of complications from that. So he lived to be over 100 years old. This director, his director credits, I think about 24, 25 films. Uh, oh, Food of the Gods. He did Food of the Gods. He did Satan's Princess, which I think was the last thing he. always was the last, second to the last movie he made was Satan's Princess in 1978. And then he didn't direct anything again until 2015. He was 92 years old when he made his last film, even though there was over a 25 year gap in making the films. So that's that's the director. What was your take on the film overall and the, the lack of necromancy?
1: The film is trash. Okay, It's just hot garbage. But when it comes to the occult stuff in there, yeah, they're using props, they're screwing it up left and right. There is no actual necromancy. (laughs) There are two things they got right. They got two things right on accident. Kind of. So at the dinner party, when she looks down into her glass and sees a vision, that's kind of how scrying into liquids works. Doesn't work that fast. It might take you a while. But that's...
0: If you were as powerful as Lori, you would do it that fast.
1: Yeah, the the whole call face there, (laughs) and they actually put in the effort to make a magical circle rug that was pretty accurate, but nothing else. There's not even the mushroom trip is correct.
0: No, again, this this is
1: done mushrooms. It doesn't do that.
0: according to Verdi Gordon, this is exactly what it does. Again, this this movie is just full of Hollywood pop culture magic.
1: Yeah, yeah, this is this is pre Satanic Panic, but we're we're building into the Satanic
0: Panic. We're pre Satanic uh, Panic, but post uh, Church of Satan. Yes, post Church of Satan, which was only a uh, few miles away in San Francisco.
1: And some of the ritual does look a little inspired by some of Anton LaVey's photos I've seen getting down and dirty in San Francisco. But yeah, if if you were to do this magic or attempt anything in this movie, you absolutely will fail. It is not <laughs> coherent magic. It is not a practice. They couldn't even get a hold of something they actually at some point did get a hold of, which would be a, either the Lamegaton or the Key of Solomon, I can't remember which one. But it was chopped up and turned into something else when it could have just arrived and been there because they had it.
0: Yes. Well, they didn't need they didn't need that. They had they had a grimoire of sorts. We're never told which one. Yep. Yeah. So, what we are, we're we're told, we're told it's the grand grimoire, but it's not labeled the grand grimoire.
1: No. And I think if you were to say the grand grimoire around a bunch of magicians, they would probably think you were talking about the red dragon. It's not, it's just not. But yeah, I mean, don't try this at home, but not because you're going to blow your magical fingers off more because it's going to be a whole lot of wasted time and money in trying to do anything with it
0: well if you want to blow your magical fingers off it turns out all of these books are in fact available uh, at booksellers and they're not much money so you can blow your, your fingers off Basically for free. And this this feels like the, the price of some of these books, given what is supposedly contained in quite a few of these, it feels like giving kids cigarettes.
1: Try not to buy anything. <laughs> Zoom in on that black book again. Tarl Warwick, try not to buy his books. If you don't know, you don't know. Just, <laughs> But if you do, you do. Do not buy Tarl's books. Do not give him money. These are all PDFs you can find online for free. I guarantee you he edited nothing in them.
0: Oh, no, these books are... You know, there a lot of these been around for a very, very, very long time. There's no lack of grimoires in this in this world, which is one of the things that's tragic about this film. When Mister Cato hands off the Grand Grimoire, that is just a a completely unadorned book. It's just a black book that says the the Grimoire on it. Whereas every other grimoire on the planet has quite an entertaining moniker attached to it.
1: So, for grimoires, which one would I suggest? Yeah the the Lesser Key of Solomon's very good, very workable. Um if you want to do I think it's Agrippa. Agrippa's fantastic. But yeah, whatever they're using that's not it. Now we know. So, from a rating of 1 to 10 shitty antiques that they found on the side of the road. How many how many shitty antiques do you give this?
0: Going back to the director. Um looking this guy up. I found out that no movie he made rated above like a six on a one to 10 scale, except one, which was 1961's Famous Ghost Tales, which apparently held up pretty well with the fan base. And that's because it had Vincent Price in it. And uh, what of those Vincent Price? And Vincent Price, unlike Orson Welles, gave a thousand percent at all times because Vincent Price strode into the room like a panther and oozed molten masculinity.
1: <laughs> if there's anything, any targets for necromancy it would be that sexy sexy corpse of vincent price
0: let's yeah let's make that happen let's get on that everybody uh i would give this movie probably a four again sometimes the production value was quite good sometimes the lighting in this was spot on it's above its league times uh because of that but the way this is written the complete lack of coherency and logic. Even one of the critics pointed out that the film felt like it had been truncated from a coherent storyline into its current version. And going back to the lawsuit the director brought against the film production company, it looks as though the director's vision of this film was for it not to make any sense whatsoever. The reviews on this film were some of the funniest reviews I've read in my life. And this came out in 1972. And just for context, Just for context, let's talk about the films this movie was up against. Okay? So in 1972, we saw the release of, and the highest grossing films that year, The Godfather, The Poseidon Adventure, What's Up Doc with Barbara Streisand, in case you don't know that one, Deliverance, Deep Throat, Jeremiah Johnson, and Cabaret. Those are the movies this was up against in theaters in 1972. There's no way it was going to compete. At all. Even though it had its own genre that it was in. But in, in the early 1970s, there was no lack of sexploitation, Luciferian cult movies. There were a dime a dozen, and this one was no different. Let's come up with a different scale, too. we got to come up with an occult scale for this show. Like, so on a scale of, say, what's called one to five pentagrams, how occult was this film?
1: One. <laughs> or, no, you are way too generous in giving it a four out of ten.
0: Well, for the film itself. okay for the for the for the
1: production quality shit i don't understand sure sure give it a four um but for the occult no no okay it's bad so what were some of those um awesome burn uh reviews that you found
0: (laughs) uh let me look through this list here if you see one you want to call out there
1: Idle Hands are Orson Welles' workshop as Welles lends approximately 4% of his immense talent to the role of one Mr. Cato, Will Burt I. Gordon, who wrote, produced, and directed this cauldron of corn, ever work in Hollywood again? Who cares? It wouldn't be so bad if necromancy succeeded in raising the dead. All it does, though, is capture the
0: smell. These, are, these were actual printed reviews.
1: Ebert observed that at his screening, the film had apparently been truncated from its original PG rating and as a result suffered from having no logical progression. An awful film despite the presence of impressive Orson Welles and dependable Pamela Franklin. In the area of thrills and chills, necromancy is a pitiful malnourishment. What's worse, it isn't even funny. Oh uh, yeah, you know we could rewrite this as a
0: comedy. We could. And uh, fun fact about this film: in two thousand and seventeen, it's after a couple years after the DVD release, it saw a bit of a revitalization, and the publication Cult Nation has named this the seventeenth best occult film of all time. No. Yes. No. Yes. Cult Nation said so themselves, and who would know better? For context, by the way. In 1972, Godfather released in March, it brought in $133 million, which in today's money, adjusted for inflation, would be just under a billion dollars the Godfather made in nine months. Compared to this movie, this movie
1: last Tango in Paris came out the same year too.
0: Yes, yes, it was a banner year for film releases. Even Necromancy came out, and this movie released in fall of that year. Later in the year, but that wasn't its first screening. It released first in Detroit, which at the time was the richest city in the world, 1972, Uh, and then Los Angeles, two major markets. So it made sense that they they premiered there before they actually released in theaters all over the country. But the very first screening of this film. In April of 1972, was at the Tehran International Film Festival. Tehran, Tehran. Yes. No. Pre-revolution. Okay, pre-revolution. Pre-revolution. Okay. So these are the kind of films they were showing in Tehran before the revolution. So again, this movie, like uh, what surrounds this movie, is insane. I I can't believe a movie this bad has seen so much revitalization and still hangs around. It's so unwatchable. Uh, they? Oh my gosh
1: About the same year as The Last House on the Left. Yes. No wonder we never heard of this before, is
0: it? got, oh, it got buried. So in 1989, a film released that has become a cult classic and everyone agrees it's a great movie. It's very low budget, but despite that, it's got a great story. It's got great talent. It's an amazing film, but it was completely buried under the release of Tim Burton's Batman 1989 with Jack Nicholson. It, it, which buried every movie that summer. Nothing else mattered for the rest of the year except Batman. Uh, and that movie would be UHF. Oh. It came out and no one even noticed because Batman was in theaters. No no one has any recollection of that film coming out. And this is one of those times when a movie such as this, you know, being a minor release, uh, full of, except for Pam Franklin and Orson Welles, full of other minor actors. And all of these actors went on to do pretty much nothing else. They did all minor roles. Pamela Franklin's husband, he's actually still acting. And he just does, like, voiceovers of video games or a small role here or there. The kid that was in it, like, he did a few more films, I guess, until puberty hit him. And he stopped acting a couple years after this came out. And we didn't see him again until, like, the 2000-teens. He started getting back into acting. This film, just like most of its cast, doomed for failure. The VHS release of this, they actually added in a few deleted scenes and added in more nudity. Again, that was when it was rebranded as The Witching, which is a better working title. But I do believe that the director was actually trying to distance the memory from it. And I thought he probably thought if he changed the title and released it with a little more nudity, that he could fool people into buying this movie again. The original theatrical cut of this film is kind of a Ruby Slipper, Holy Grail thing in Hollywood, where people very much want the original theatrical cut. Fans of this film want it. There are fans, but no one can find it. It's gone. Who knows where it is?
1: So that was Necromancy. I am never watching this one again. Yeah. Sorry, y'all. I picked (laughs) a stinker on purpose. I didn't know it was that bad. Okay. Camera Occulta is a part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network.
0: What is it you want no, I
1: think in
0: it's... your depths
1: of your ignorance?
0: What is it you want? Whatever it is you want, I can't deliver because I just don't see it. That was absolutely fine. It really was.
1: you, 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 you It not worth it. No money is worth it.